Welcome to the Agency Huddle Podcast. I'm your host, Clancy Erickson, and in this episode, I share the historical background of the anti-sexual violence movement while highlighting the legislative and policy timeline, as well as discussing specific marginalized populations' experience within the anti-sexual violence movement. So grab your coffee and get excited, because this is the Agency Huddle. I want to start off by saying that the history of sexual violence is a history of racism, white supremacy, and sexism intertwined. Starting from the very beginning, indigenous communities experienced sexual violence by European colonizers in the 16th century when they came to what is now known as the United States. Rape was very uncommon in traditional native societies, but that all changed with the arrival of Europeans who misconstrued nudity and sexual autonomy as promiscuity and immorality. Rape and other forms of violence were used as tools of oppression, and this legacy of violence continues to haunt Indigenous communities today. Indigenous people in the U.S. face higher rates of sexual violence than the, than the general population. In fact, American Indians are twice as likely to experience a rape slash sexual assault compared to all races. And the majority of these sexual assaults are perpetrated by individuals outside of Indigenous communities. So I want to highlight a significant Supreme Court case. In 2016, a 13-year-old boy was working in a Dollar General store on tribal lands of the Mississippi lands of the band of Choctaw Indians and was sexually assaulted by a manager. The survivor and his family, who are members of the tribe, sued the manager of the Dollar General in tribal court. The the Dollar General store then sued the tribe in district court, stating that the tribal courts did not have jurisdiction over people who were not Native. The case made it to Supreme Court over the question of whether tribal courts could hold non-Native people responsible for particular crimes, such as this sexual assault, which occurred on tribal lands. The Supreme Court was equally divided, which meant that the ruling that allowed the tribe to have jurisdiction would stand. So it's important to understand the history of sexual violence within Indigenous communities and how that legacy still continues on today. In examining the history of the anti-sexual violence movement, it's critical to highlight Black women's role within the movement. Raping a Black woman was not a crime for the majority of this country's history. Today, there remains a deep connection between centuries of institutionalized slavery Black women's bodies, and current anti-Black racial oppression. Looking back at Black women's history within the movement, I want to start with another significant Supreme Court case. In 1885, the issue of rape, race, women, and slavery was addressed by a significant Supreme Court case, Missouri versus Celia. Celia was an enslaved Black woman who was convicted of murdering her slaveholder, Robert Newsom. Her case was appealed to the Supreme Court of Missouri, arguing that she had killed Newsom to protect herself from being raped by him. The Supreme Court refused the appeal, declaring that Celia was the property of her owner with no right to defend herself from sexual assault. From this Supreme Court decision, Black women such as Ida B. Wells took leadership roles in anti-lynching campaigns to combat existing rape laws that did not protect Black women but they did justify the lynching of a black man when they were accused of raping a white woman. So essentially, it was a capital offense only when a black man raped a white woman, 
but the rape of a black woman was not even considered a crime. So stemming from these anti-lynching campaigns, in 1896, hundreds of black women clubs that formed across the country organized into the National Association of Colored Women in response to Ida B. Wells' um, leadership in the anti-lynching campaigns, and thousands of women devoted their efforts to reform. Continuing through history, we can see Afri African-American women at the forefront of this movement. So long before Rosa Parks became the patron saint of the bus boycott, she was actually an anti-rape activist and investigator. The 1995 Montgomery bus boycott was, in many ways, the last act in a decades-long struggle to protect Black women from sexualized violence and rape, since they also were sites of sexual and race, racial violence for Black women, who made up the majority of the riders. Buses became the target of Black activist protests because they were most the most visible vehicles of the system that abused African-Americans daily. Organized, led, and sustained by these very women, the Montgomery bus boycott was rooted in Black women's demands for bodily integrity. It's vital to understand this history because traumatic experience shared by communities can result in a cumulative emotional and psychological wound carried across generations. This concept is called historical trauma. As a result, many people in these communities experience higher rates of mental and physical illness, substance abuse, and erosion in families and community structures. This persistent cycle of trauma destroys families and communities and threatens the vibrancy of entire cultures. Historical trauma is not just about what happened in the past, it's about what's still happening. So I'm now going to be moving on to some legislative and policy history. So the 1970s and 80s were a very significant time in the anti-sexual violence movement. Um, so starting in 1972, the first rape crisis centers were established, and this included the Bay Area Women Against Rape and the Washington, D.C. Rape Crisis Center. So these rape crisis centers provided services to survivors, and they were seen as networking hubs for the anti-rape movement. In the mid-1970s, the National Organization for Women began advocating for policy change to create stronger protection for survivors of sexual assault. Um, some of these policy changes included marital rape laws, rape shield laws, redefining consent, and striking down requirements that a witness must be present to be able to prosecute sexual assault. In 1978, the National Coalition Against Sexual Assault was established to advocate at the national level for public policy and increased resources to improve the lives of sexual assault survivors. One year later, in 1979, the Washington Coalition of Sexual Assault Programs was created by a group of local rape crisis centers and survivors to be a policy voice and to advocate for funding for sexual assault on a statewide level in Washington. So moving on to the 80s, there was an increase of public conversation surrounding sexual assault. In 1982, the Preventative Health and Health Service Block Grant was the first federal allocation for rape crisis services and prevention distri distribution for sexual assault centers. In 1985, the Federal Crime Act was passed, establishing a central source of federal financial support for direct services for victims of crime, and this included sexual assault. 
I'm now going to be talking about a controversial act. So in 1994, the first Federal Violence Against Women Act was passed, and this creates new penalties for sexual violence and established the Rape Prevention and Education Program, as well as STOP grant funds. So on one end, this legislation has provided significant visibility funding and stability to sexual violence services and protection work for the past 20 years. On the other end, many women of color leaders within the movement voice concerns about the act, highlighting the possible consequences of the ways that the legislation aligned the work of anti-sexual violence movement so closely with the cr criminal legal system. The unintended consequences they pointed out were barriers to service for marginalized communities, weakened activism within the field, contributing to mass incarceration as a whole, as well as the consequences of downplay downplaying their own voices within the movement. As I looked back at the history of the anti-sexual violence movement and highlighted significant policy and legislative decisions, I want to say once again that it's the hard work and courage of countless women that led to the establishment of rape crisis centers and advocacy as we know it today. I will now look at the current state of anti-sexual violence work, and there are a few important moments in recent history that I want to highlight. President Obama is the first U.S. president to declare April as Sexual Assault Awareness Month in 2009. The Me, Too, the Me Too movement was born, and this has increased the visibility and amplified voices of survivors and a, began a call for change. A rape survivor's sexual history now cannot be used to discredit a survivor in court. And the Clery Act was amended in 2013, which requires greater transparency and timely warnings from colleges and universities about crimes that are committed on campus, including crimes of sexual violence. A huge point of conversation among anti-sexual violence workers today is societal conversations around victim blaming. In society at large, victims are blamed for the violence they suffer. It is still common for people to ask, why did survivor wear that? Why did sur the survivor say this? Why did the survivor go there? Why did the survivor drink that? Rather than, why did the offender rape said survivor? In the next episode, I will be personally reflecting about my time at Crossroads and my experiences working in a rape crisis center. You will hear about the roles I've participated in, and I will provide an overview of the activities that I've been a part of and what I've preferred and what I maybe not liked as much. So get excited for the next episode. This has been episode three of the Agency Huddle. I'll see you on next week's episode.